welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about patients. We are all current patients, previous patients, or future patients. Keep that in mind, please. In everything that we do, we need to keep our patients at the heart of what we are doing in healthcare. I cannot emphasize that enough. I wanted to tape this episode and bring a patient perspective to how words matter in what we say in public, what we say on social media, Twitter, Facebook, other aspects, and how we talk about certain elements of clinical trials when we describe patient's tolerance to therapy. I think it's really important. If you are describing a clinical trial on a social media outlet, there's a possibility that one of the participants in that clinical trial is reading what you are saying. Be cognizant of that. If we are talking about a particular therapy and we say that that therapy is well-tolerated with minimal side effects, be cognizant that a patient who is receiving that therapy may be on that treatment and they are not tolerating treatment very well. So I think I wanted to really tape an episode about words, how words matter from a patient perspective. So at least to raise a cautionary tale that all of us as healthcare professionals, as healthcare providers, as physicians, as nurses, as pharmacists, think about who is listening to us, who is reading what we are saying, because patients and families are reading, are listening. And we need to make sure that we are delivering that message in a very compassionate manner, in a very empathetic way, because we are all going to be in that seat at some point. None of us is eternal, and we are going to be in that seat. So how do we want specific news delivered? Nobody is saying not to deliver the news. It's how you deliver the news. It's not about lying and sugarcoating. It's about saying the truth, but saying it in a manner that patients can understand and in a compassionate way. So to do that, I am hosting Laura Lee. Laura Lee is a journalist on the East Coast who was affected by cancer in vir by virtue of the fact that her dad was diagnosed with cancer. So she understands very well the impact of cancer on family and family members and how words that we sometimes use casually in our conversations could have a significant impact on patients and on families. So Laura is a journalist, understand the journalistic part, but also she brings the patient perspective and the family perspective. I'm very delighted and honored that uh, Laura gave me time of her busy schedule to talk about the story and I hope you enjoy uh, the discussion that we had together. And before I air the episode that I taped with Laura, and for context, we taped this episode on November 19, 
2020. It is being aired a couple of weeks later. I want to remind you by checking out the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast on all outlets, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, anywhere you find your podcasts, please check out the Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe, rate, review, refer the podcast to a colleague. I'm sure a word of mouth will go a long way in disseminating the information that we are trying to disseminate. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to have Laura Lee on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right. Well, it is really a pleasure to have Laura Lee with me on today's podcast. So Laura is a lawyer by training. Uh, I learned that she has a JD degree. And as much as I like to stay away from lawyers being a physician, I actually have a couple of episodes that will be with lawyers, but uh, that is not Laura's day job. She's going to tell us about it because she is a journalist. And for those of you who listen to the show, you know that one of my dreams have always been to be a journalist, but then um, that did not happen. I don't think I was a good enough writer to be a journalist. We're going to talk today about uh, really how words matter to patients and families. And I think Laura has the perfect perspective as a, as a patient advocate, as a, a family member who was affected by a cancer, as well as a journalist and, and so forth. So Laura, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. We have connected several months ago on social media by chance, and I was very intrigued and admired, frankly, your opinions about the importance of words and how they affect patients and language and how they impact patients and families. But before we get into it, just a little bit about you and, and who you are and um, what you do day in and day out, and uh, a little bit more about your personal story with your, with your dad and your family. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a journalist, as you mentioned. I work for an investigative independent news organization, and we cover uh, the state of North Carolina where I live. It's called Carolina Public Press. And I've been an editor with them very briefly and prior to that with several other organizations. And like you said, I, I have the law degree and, um, and the student debt to prove it. And my, you know, I really had not focused in healthcare at all um, in, in my work as a journalist and became far more interested in healthcare when my dad was diagnosed intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, which is bile duct cancer. It took several weeks to learn the pronunciation of even that diagnosis in February of 2019. And I guess the journalist in me just really, you know, my, my reaction is to immerse myself in the information. So quickly learned uh, how to read medical journals and um, the vocabulary around cholangiocarcinoma, around cancer generally, sought out other patient advocates, caregivers, family members, through somewhat through social media to, to learn more about the disease and what the treatment options might be at that point. And yeah, I've just been walking along that path with my dad for almost two years now. How is he doing? Can I ask? He's doing well. He is doing well. He's um, He's been on a targeted therapy for just over a year. And that's been incredible in terms of quality of life, particularly in the pandemic, the ability to 
take that medication at home and not have to go in for an infusion or go into hospital for radiation, sort of a layer on, on that gift of that particular targeted medication. So, you know, there have been some definite setbacks. It has not been easy. I don't want to gloss over it at all. But when you are initially diagnosed with this disease and you Google and you see the statistics and you hear what the doctors are saying to you, you only sort of hear because you're in that state of shock, but you hear that initially given, you know, where we were in February, 2019 and where we are now, you know, very, very lucky and grateful. Did he need to have surgery at all in the beginning or is it? Uh... He was unfortunately unresectable. It's been unresectable. So um, there was discussion of, and actually he was evaluated for and approved for transplant, which is pretty exceptional for that diagnosis. And his insurance company has denied it. And that's a, we've been in appeals with them for about a year. And that's a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. Um, so no, he has not had any surgery. So as a journalist, well, I, I'll have to ask, did you ever practice law or um, you just migrated from law? I did. I, pra I practiced for a little bit. And I think there are a lot of transferable skills. You know, people think it's a little bit unusual to transition from law to journalism. But really, there's a lot of similar skill sets and similar activities, right? Like interviewing people, questioning people, assessing people's credibility. I mean, those are all things that I do every day as a journalist. I like the pace more in journalism than I did in law. And I like, I'm an extrovert and a people person. And you know, some areas of law allow for that, but, but many do not. And so journalism, you know, I, I, it, basically I can say I, I have an excuse to be nosy. As a journalist, you said you were not writing about healthcare. Has that changed since your dad's diagnosis? Have you started to do a little bit more of healthcare uh, pieces or no? I haven't really. Um, and part of that is just the nature of my work before this position was in education journalism. So I was really immersed in that for several years. I mean, I've done healthcare stories in the past. I think, you know, I probably see it with a different, with, I definitely see it with a different lens now when I read other people's healthcare stories, understanding some of the reliance that patients have on health stories in the news that I maybe didn't, wasn't fully aware of before, but, but much of my work just hasn't involved healthcare coverage. Obviously now everybody's involving healthcare, you know, some yeah. of the work I do in the media is coronavirus related and clearly that involves yeah. healthcare coverage. So, you know, a couple of things that I wanted to talk to you about, but, but one, you know, I'll start by saying that the first one is how do patients and families take the healthcare news that they read and they try to consume in the media and synthesize that to their own case? You know, so I'm diagnosed, you know, with the intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Let's take your dad's story. I think everybody, like you said, they will go to the internet. They're going to Google and all of these things. And, and they're going to see articles. They're going to see pieces written in peer-reviewed literature, in the medical literature. They're going to see pieces written in the, you know, lay journals. And they're going to see some physicians talk about the disease, videos, YouTube. Uh, they'll see tweets about it, all of these things. And it's all over the place. So I think my first question to you is from a patient perspective and family perspective, how do you take all of these, synthesize them, and how do you also factor in some of the, I, I don't want to say harsh, but maybe the extremely pessimistic approach to things where, you know, you, you can't do this. This is uh, awful. This is a terrible drug. And you may be on that drug. And, and you, know, how, you, you know what I'm getting at. So how, mm -hmm. do, how, how do you do that? Or how did you do that with your dad? 
Yeah, I think it's difficult. And I think people, I don't want to speak for everyone. I think people have a different tolerance for the amount of information they can digest generally. And I think that is, is certainly true when it comes to someone that you love's disease, right? So there are people who want, I'm a person who wants every shred of information that I can possibly gather. And I'm willing to sort of, you know, when my dad was first diagnosed, I literally went to the public library, locked myself in a study room and treated it like I was studying for the bar, right? Just teaching myself everything that I possibly could from all of the kinds of sources that you're talking about. Obviously that's not gonna be everyone's experience or need or desire, and that's great. Um, I think what I found interesting about the way people synthesize some of this information is the collaborative and communal efforts to do that. And so, you know, for example, I'm in a Facebook group with cholangiocarcinoma caregivers, cholangiocarcinoma patients, and there's a lot of processing of that information that happens there. So someone might post an article, I mean, say, I only understand a portion of this, or does anyone know anything more about this mutation? And there's some other people who are more knowledgeable, may have, maybe have more of a scientific background that can share what they know about it. And so it's not, it's not sort of the direct communication that you think about if you just open the newspaper and read it. There's some, some collaborative effort to gain a better understanding of this to the degree that you want to. Some of that also can be assessing for each other, the credibility of certain pieces of information, right? So there's a little bit of real-time fact-checking is probably overstating it, but something, you know, in that vein, figuring out, yeah, this, this is credible and here's some other evidence that backs that up. Or, yeah, we've read that before, but if you look at this other study, it doesn't demonstrate that. So it's almost a, an informal social media peer review, if you will. What are the issues that when you see on written on about diseases, about drugs, about clinical trials that you're concerned about from a patient perspective? I think that's really what I gathered from your, mm -hmm. me and you talking, is you're very concerned about some of the tones, <clears throat> some of the you know, whatever, tell me in your own words, yeah. what are the issues that concern you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, tone for sure. I mean, I think social media universe is a tricky place because in some ways it feels like you are talking to a particular group of peers that you have curated, right? Your feed is giving you something that you have set parameters for. And I think that can give everyone, but medical providers among that, uh, a false sense of their audience. When in fact, social media, the social media universe, unless you have your account on, on a lockdown, is everyone. And so I think, you know, one of the places where I had sort of stepped into a conversation on Twitter about this was not taking issue with a critique or a criticism of a trial, for example. In fact, I fully support that, right? I want professional expertise about whether or not a trial is working, worthwhile, efficient, but there's a subtlety about the tone and the language that one uses to convey that information. And I think, you know, we all take different approaches depending on who we believe our audience to be, right? Like I would imagine, I haven't been in a tumor board meeting, but I would imagine that there's a, a different tone in that capacity than there is when you're in the room with the patient in an exam room with the patient. And so I think it's worthwhile to think about 
tone and language, particularly in the social media context, and who the audience out there is for that. And that's not to say, you know, that you should sort of put a positive spin on everything. It's just to say that words matter and the attention that you pay to those, to the, to the choice of your vocabulary, to the tone that you use matters to people that you may not even think about being your audience, right? So patients and caregivers who are following a hashtag and, and just not sort of accepting that an online forum is your, is your sort of private meeting because you've used a hashtag that's, that's used, you know, only by a particular subset of a community, which goes back to, you know, sort of a basic journalistic principle, which is thinking about your audience, who's reading this. And, you know, I think, and I've said this on Twitter a few times that I even have to sort of advocate for compassionate language is, is a bit surprising to me in this context. Right. Cause I've been some tweets that I was just taken aback thinking, if I put myself in the shoes of somebody who had been in a trial that was being critiqued or a family member who'd been in that trial and I read this, you know, it would be sort of a, a, a punch to the gut to see some, the way some of these tweets were framed or polls were framed. And so it's not to say at all, I mean, obviously I spent my, my career seeking out truth. Um, it's not to say at all that I don't want to see criticism or critique. It's to say that tone and language around that matters. Yeah, you said a lot of things that I'd like to, uh, to dissect a little bit. And one of the things you said in terms of the uh, obviously being compassionate and uh, or the tone. And, you know, there's people will will counter and say, you know, we don't want to sugarcoat things. Right. Uh, we don't want to really, um, you know, we're not going to, you know, dress uh, uh, something that is really ugly with a beautiful dress and just pretend that they're pretty. And, uh, you know, the... You know, but but you also said, which is really interesting, that you know your Twitter feed. If we're talking about Twitter, and Twitter is just one mode of social media, sure. but uh, might give you a skewed approach of who's reading because there are way more people that are reading more than just your own feed. But the same, so how do you how do you balance the fact that uh, I may say, you know what, I'm not gonna if a if a trial is bad, it's bad. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, and if a patient was in it, they deserve the right to know that they were in a bad trial and they need to advocate for themselves. They can pick up the phone and call their doctor and say, why did you recommend this trial? I mean, there's this movement into trying to get patients to really advocate for themselves as well. Maybe it's too strong. So I, tr I, I, wanna, I want the listeners to understand what you mean by compassionate language in the setting of maybe a study that was poorly conducted. Sure. And, and, you know, with the caveat that I'm not in this position because I'm not a medical provider, I'm not a, an investigator who has to sort of make these assessments. So I'm not, I don't want to, you know, sound like I'm saying this is an easy thing to do. Um, I think framing matters. So I'll give you an example from Twitter. If you put something in a poll, like which of these was the worst? That takes on, to me, a very BuzzFeed sort of quiz tone, right? That's a, that's a casual, informal perhaps flippant approach to something that's very serious and difficult and challenging for a patient, for a family. And so I think thinking about even this, the, the format of the way that you put that information out, I think, you know, I certainly don't want sugarcoating. And I, I think, but I do think that it's a, that there's a myth around compassionate language being sugarcoating, right? And some of this is, is probably 
in medical education and medical practice already in terms of bedside manner. And what I'm getting at is really about an online bedside manner, a digital bedside manner, if you will. So it's not, it's not refraining from telling the truth. It's not avoiding being direct. I mean, I certainly can't say enough about my father's physicians in that respect. Like one of the best parts of their communication is they don't shy away from telling us the truth. But to do that in a way, in the most compassionate way, to give a little bit of pause, to take a half second to think about the framing, to think about the language, I think is time well spent. And I think it does not negate the ability to tell the truth. You don't have to sugarcoat something, but you can think about the way that you're conveying and also the context. Again, like your, your, your Twitter feed your Facebook page, I mean, we, we keep talking about Twitter, it could be any number of social media outlets, is it private? And, and I would imagine the conversations that doctors have with one another behind closed doors, much like those that lawyers have with one another behind closed doors are not the conversations you're gonna have when the client's in the room. They're not the conversations you're gonna have in front of the judge, right? So um, it's okay, I think, to adjust your language to the context. And I would make the argument that the, the sphere of social media inherently involves patients and caregivers, and that should be at the forefront of, of the minds of, of people who are posting there. You know, it's, uh, and I think what you said also is key that the audience is probably broader than what you think. Uh, I actually love the analogy that you bring comparing tumor board versus the exam room. You know, I, I think it really for listeners who are listening, this is really an excellent analogy. I mean, in a tumor board, you have various physicians, they could debate things and they could get loud at each other and all of these things. But at the end of the day, when you go into the exam room with a patient, you're not going to be telling them this trial was the worst thing ever to humanity. You're going to sit down. You're going to talk to them. You're going to talk about the pitfalls. You'll say, you know what? This is why I don't think this trial is good for you. But you, you will say it in a different tone. I, mm-hmm. The tumor board uh, analogy resonates with me very well. Uh, well said. I, I, I like that. Thank you. And also, we should note, I've never sat in on a tumor board, so I have no idea what actually happens. I'm just speculating about that the, the tone would be yeah. different. Just imagine um, some lawyer sitting in a room and they're shouting <laughs> at each other. Yeah. Uh, I can't okay. imagine that. I think it's also important to say, you know, your question was about critiquing or, or saying this is the worst and that we should be transparent about that. And I think, you know, it's, it's some of this you hear in managerial training, right? That you don't come with a problem without a solution. And so it's a real temptation in social media to be able to offer a critique and to not subsequently offer some sort of suggestion for how something might be better. And I think about that with my dad, for example. So my dad is now retired judge and he had made some decisions in a pretty high profile case. And so there were some talking heads on a news program critiquing the decisions that he'd made. And I looked over in his recliner and he looked completely unbothered by any of this. And, you know, I can feel my blood pressure rising. They're, they're criticizing this and they're criticizing that. And he says, they're arm, armchair quarterbacks. You know, they're not, they're not in the fight. And so if you're, you know, and he, he, he kind of said, you know, how sad to, to, to have a career built only on offering criticism of other people's action, right? Instead of offering something else of your own to the world. And this is a, sort of a principle that Brene Brown, I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown's work, but you know, she talks about, and I think she actually took it from Theodore Roosevelt about being, being in the arena, right. And you don't get to sort of offer a a critique or a criticism unless you're also sort of out on the battlefield 
um, involved in, in, in trying to make things better. So, you know, I think it's important if you're going to offer those kinds of assessments in social media or in, or in the world to, to, to at least attempt to couple that with like, how could this be better and not just say, well, that was the worst trial you could have possibly done. You know, you'll laugh at this. My favorite quote ever is Theodore Roosevelt uh, in the arena. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> I actually have it framed. Oh. And uh, I've tweeted that way too many times. It is. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely. Um, uh, and I did read a book for to Brene Brown. I think she's uh, very articulate. So I, I totally understand. Laura, let, let's talk a little bit about within clinical trials and so forth. Um, oftentimes, you hear about quality of life, toxicity, uh, side effects, things like that. Uh, I don't know. T- tell me, tell me from a from a patient perspective, family perspective, when when you when you read about these well tolerated, no side effects, no adverse events. Is this something you roll your eyes over? Is this something you can understand if your dad is doing well? Like, how, how do you also synthesize mm-hmm. this of it? Because this is another part of wording within clinical trials that the trialists write in the journal, in the paper. Well, and I'll tell you, I had no exposure to that prior to my dad's diagnosis. So I really didn't even understand when I first, I mean, I was very ignorant about the fact that any of these things would be graded, that you would have levels, that there would be some sort of attempt to make objective these quality of life measures. And, you know, I think it's good that there is attention to that. It didn't, it didn't seem to me, I was pleasantly surprised, I guess I should say, to discover that that was a, a factor. I think it's difficult if you're not well-versed in the literature to understand what a lot of that means if you're just um, an average patient caregiver who isn't reading every single thing that comes out. And then I think a lot of it, again, it's a parallel to journalism in terms of knowing your audience is also it's not just about putting information to the audience. It's about listening to what their needs are. And so, you know, quality of life for different people um, takes on different shapes. And so some of the toxicities or bad side effects for some people matter not to others. My dad, you know, I frequently worry about some of his symptoms. It's a, you know, gastrointestinal disease. I worry constantly asking him how he feels on that front. And his most aggravating condition at the moment is this persistent cough that he's had for, I don't know, a year and a half probably. (laughs) And uh, it's always the sort of follow-up question that he has to every doctor after we've discussed everything is, okay, can you tell me anything about this cough? Because there doesn't appear to be a root, root cause. And that is a like daily aggravation and frustration for him that affects his quality of life. And it's not something that I think would sort of register um, on, on objective standards. I mean, you might say cough, but you don't necessarily, I don't even think about as his caregiver, like what that sort of means every single day to be coughing all the time. Um, so a lot of it is listening and, and understanding. And this is, this is less at you know, the macro level of a trial, but more at the individual patient level. You know, what are they saying is important to them? You know, I was talking to somebody recently about um, someone I know who's, who's, you know, unwell and they had been very, very active and outdoors person in their, in their, um, life before they became ill. And, you know, so they're missing that a lot for me, the inability to, to kayak, for example, is, would have no bearing on my life. I don't do that anyway. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to the other direction of communication, which is listening 
to individual patients about what quality of life really means to them. And that it's beyond these sort of standardized objective measures that have great value, I think, in terms of assessing trials and, and, and the literature, but may, may not matter so much on an individual patient level, if that makes sense. Yeah. But at a larger level, I mean, the more I listen to you, I'm trying to think, how do we get patients and families involved more in, in some of these things? I mean, I, I had a, a podcast episode that I taped with a lung cancer advocate, Jill Feldman, who has really done a lot of work on behalf of patients. And, you know, you know she works for a non-for-profit trying to bring some funding and all of these things. But um, how do we get these ideas that represent patients and how they feel and what they, uh, you know, and try to modify things to elevate their voice and to let others be more sensitive to them? Um, like what's the, you, you said you like solutions to the problem mm -hmm. as opposed to proposing a problem. I think, so let's outline the problem. Let's summarize the problem in your own words. And let's try to think about solutions to the problem. How's that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the problem you're identifying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is a lack of interaction or participation from individual patients or fa families, caregivers with members of the medical community. Is that, does that yeah. sort of what you're, what you're saying? And I think there are several potential mechanisms. You know, the one that comes to my mind at the front is through established organizations like what you're talking about, right? So the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation, for example, really makes a lot of efforts to bring, well, in pre-pandemic era, physically bring patients and caregivers and, and uh, medical practitioners together. I think often in a context where it's not about your particular condition, right? So that, um, you know, and I've gone to several conferences, some related to Clangio, some more broadly, you know, oncology, precision medicine conferences. And it was interesting to see the interest in what I had to say, um, as if patients and caregivers were uh, such unique creatures and, and that my attendance at some of these, you know, I'd be the only caregiver patient advocate um, in the room. And, and I guess pleasantly surprised that people had that much interest in, in what we had to say, creating the spaces where you can have those kinds of interactions. You know, I think it, there is some burden. I don't want to make it sound like the, the medical provider has to, you know, bear the burden for facilitating this kind of communication. I do think, you know, I like to sort of stop in an appointment. And I can think of several examples, even in my own medical experience where um, I'm thinking of one in particular where a doctor rushed in and, and he immediately jumped to the condition. And I was frustrated because I'd already been in the waiting room for a very long time. <laughs> and I stopped him and said, put my hand out and said, hi, I'm Laura and you are. And, and I said, you know, I've been waiting for however long, you know, a little bit of context around what my experience to that point had been before we jump into the nitty gritty of my, of my medical experience. And I think, you know, there's, time demands and I'm not ignorant of the massive obligations of many of these medical providers and, and, and I'm sensitive to that. But I think, again, just that half second is time well spent. And I think there's a burden too on patients and families to say, hey, hang on. Actually, the thing that's really bothering him is this cough. Like I appreciate everything that we've established about the, the interventions and the treatment. Is there anything we can do? And a lot of these things that I see, especially in the Facebook groups, I mean, it's symptom management that I know there are 
available inter interventions for, but a lot of the things you have to say it, you have to ask. And, and I was struck by another caregiver I met early on in this, who said, you know, I have a patient of one, I have an N of one. This medical provider knows far more than I do about the medicine, the condition, the, the treatment, but no one in the world knows more than I do about this particular patient, right? And so there's an obligation on the patient, the caregiver, the family member to share that information, to, to, to share the prioritization. Like, it's not important to me that, that I'm able to go run a mile, but it's very important to me that I'm able to stay up late to read to my grandkid or whatever the, the you know, condition of that person's life. You know, you mentioned something really interesting. And I, I mean, is it time you think that there should be quote unquote digital bedside manners in education? I mean, I'm concerned about that because you, you do mention, you know, I mean, medical students and residents do get trained in how to communicate. I think they could always get trained more, but there's some elements in the curriculum to communicate sometimes how to deliver bad news and discuss all of this. And I've been obviously out of medical school for a long time, so I'm not really sure if it exists, but but maybe the, the digital bedside matters, like be, be cautious of what you tweet, what you post on Facebook, what you put on outlets where patients and families could read what mm -hmm. you are saying. Do you, are you, um, is this something that you have advocated for? Do you, are you aware of this happening? Uh, I'll have to check this out actually myself, but I don't know. I haven't, I haven't advocated, advocated for it. I don't want to have a chilling effect on what um, doctors and, and medical professionals are saying, right? And so uh, again, I would return to, it's about tone, it's about language. You can convey the same information, much like with regular, you know, sort of traditional bedside manner. And I think your point is, is well made that perhaps the time is ripe for this because we are living more now in a digital universe than we ever have uh, because of the pandemic. And so it may be a really ripe opportunity for medical education to think about the ways that we train people to communicate online. And I think, you know, it, it, social media is the obvious place. I mean, the other place I think about as a patient caregiver, patient family care, caregiver, is my chart, the electronic communications that we use, the access, and I've seen this several times, right? You have access now to your medical records digitally. And so um, there are timing issues with that. I've certainly read things in my father's record in advance of his doctor's breaking certain news to us. I I'm fairly well-versed in, in his condition, so I can understand some of that, but I, I see other people with a lot of confusion because they get the radiology report in advance of, of actually speaking to the doctor, they get the biomarker testing and there's a lot of confusion around what it may or may not mean. So I think thinking about, and, and you know, that's a way that we communicate with medical providers, right? This, this messaging on, I'm saying my chart, I guess that's a brand, but uh, medical records, yeah. medical, digital medical records. Thinking about the way that you, you know, lead an email when you're writing that to a patient or the way you conclude an email when you're writing that to a patient, you know, again, all these things may take an extra 30 seconds of time, but I think it's, it's well spent, right? Because at the end of the day, it's relationship building. I think as long as you know that your audience is not just the doctors in social media, I think that's really the key message. Mm -hmm. Laura, are there any other issues in that topic that I should have asked you about, or we discussed that I just completely 
overlooked and just forgot or just completely missed the mark. I want to make sure we capture that. I think it's very important. I want to make sure I tackle sure. all angles. Anything I missed? No, I don't, I don't think there's anything you missed. I mean, the only thing I was really thinking about is like the objectives for different people are different on social media, right? And so some people are on social media to become Twitter, lo Twitter liberties, right? <laughs> if that's the end goal, you know, then, then your approach is going to be different. But I think by and large, at least from the medical Twitter that I follow, people are trying to share ideas, especially right now, figure out, you know, what innovations are working, share information with, with each other and their community, with patient advocates and caregivers. And so if that's, if that's the objective, I would just say, you know, think about the words that you're using and think about the language that you're using. Laura, I don't know what Met Twitter you're following. Every Met Twitter I'm following talks <laughs> politics right now. I haven't, I mean, I, actually I joke right now. I say if I, I get my politics from Met Twitter and I get my <laughs> medical uh, update from politicians, I, I'm not really sure. I, well. think, I think physicians have forgotten, honestly, to tweet about medicine anymore. Very few. I, I'm very disappointed. Oh, no. That's all they do. It's politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could, I could, you know, pivot in, in a NASCAR driver sense and say, uh, get all your news at carolinapublicpress.org. There you go. What <laughs> carolinapublicpress.org. Well, look, I want to thank you for taking the time and I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave you before I uh, say goodbye. Just uh, final words you want to tell uh, our listeners, um, the physicians and medical professionals on Twitter, on social media, sure. in the lay press. I mean, many of our, um, Many of the physicians write for lay press sometimes as well. They have blogs, right. or other things. Any final words you'd like to part us with? Yeah, I guess the final words would just be ones of gratitude, you know, that all of the things you're describing, that those are extra things and there may be some incentives to do it, but, but by and large, it's motivated by just a desire to share information. And as a patient, um, family member, as a caregiver, just immense gratitude for the availability of that information and the willingness for medical professionals to share that because um, they don't have to. And so we, we do really appreciate it. Well, that is really wonderful. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I wish uh, your dad all the best. I, Thank I, you. I'm so happy he is doing well and I hope he continues to do well. And um, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending your time with us and talking about patient journeys and how words matter. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate that you stuck with us. And I also would like to hear from you about the podcast and how we can improve on the episodes, the, whatever we are trying to do. You can send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com or send me a note through the website at www.chadinabhan.com. You can send me an email there and I'm sure that I will get the information that you are trying to send. Rate, subscribe, review the podcast. If you have time, writing a small review, a tiny review would really go way long. I want to leave you really with that saying that Laura Lee mentioned, which Brene Brown often talks about, but it is really one of my favorite sayings by Theodore Roosevelt. Since was mentioned on the podcast, I'm going to read the quote for you. It's in its entirety. So bear with me. It is one of my favorites. 
the man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Until next time, take care.